Hi, and welcome to episode 142 of the Untethered Podcast. Today, we have Dr. Stephen Park joining us. Dr. Park is a board-certified ENT surgeon and sleep doctor, blogger, podcaster, and author of the Amazon bestseller, Sleep Interrupted, a physician reveals the number one reason why so many of us are sick and tired. His passion is to empower people with chronic health conditions to breathe better, sleep better, think better, and thrive in life with much more energy. After 23 years in private practice in academia, he recently left practicing medicine to focus full-time on his mission through his online holistic wellness model to reach and serve as many people as possible. Quick disclaimer, all information, content, and material of this podcast are the opinions of the speakers and is for the informational purpose only and not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified healthcare provider. Welcome to the Untethered Podcast. I am your host, Hallie Balkin. I'm a certified orofacial myologist, feeding specialist, and mentor. This podcast is all about getting your questions answered and collaborating with colleagues to bring you the most up-to-date information in the orofacial myofunctional therapy, tethered oral tissue, and airway space. I challenge you to keep an open mind and join my mission to get this information out to the masses. Let's get started. Steve, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. I know we're going to talk all about UARS and some other fun topics, but I'm, I'm really excited to have you here. Thanks for inviting me, Hallie. Really so, looking forward to it. Yeah, let's jump right on in. I know everybody's got a story, and I would love to hear about your personal journey as it relates to UARS, Upper Airway Resistance Syndrome. So growing up as a child and as a young adult, I was always falling asleep in classes, lectures. Um, <laughs> everyone made fun of me. And I just kind of just bared through it. Um, luckily, in medical school, it was much easier because I was running around all the time and not sleeping at all. Uh, and then surgical residency was the same thing, just, just didn't sleep and just always constantly on the go. But then, but even in the lectures during medical school and residency, I was just, I just could not stay awake. I just thought, well, it just, that's the way it is. And when I went to practice, I came across this article by Dr. Christian Gimeno, you may have heard of him, very, very sleep, sleep medicine pioneer at Stanford. Um, he just passed away a couple of years ago, but he wrote a paper called Upper Airway Resistance Syndrome, or some as a variation of that title, which described me exactly. So he studied a bunch of young, thin, healthy looking men and women who were tired and fatigued all the time, but did not have sleep apnea on the sleep test. And what he did was he put an esophageal pressure catheter through the nose into the esophagus to measure pressure in the chest cavity. What, we, what he found was that even though they're not having apneas, these inspiratory efforts were leading to lower and lower pressures, at which point the brain waves kept waking up. So fragmented sleep causing deep sleep fragmentation, which is what was leading to these symptoms. That's, I mean, that's, that's me too. So I've been there. I've had, <laughs> you know, mostly home sleep tests and it all comes back fine. And I'm over here going, well, why am I waking up so exhausted? And it was so interesting too, because I made it through school with great grades until I got to college and I really struggled my first semester in college. And so my parents took me to get tested for ADHD. And sure enough, they're like, well, you're, you have a really high IQ, but you're highly distractible. And you know, on the test, you, you're a candidate for Ritalin. So at 19, they put me on Ritalin. And I, my grades, got, they were great. And I was like, what gives? Why are other people able to take my notes from class and, get, and not attend class and get straight A on the test, but I got a C. They were my notes. And I know the answers two weeks later, but I didn't know them on the test. I haven't looked at this material in two weeks. Like I was very confused. And you know, I go along my personal journey to later find out that I was that traditional UARS case and orthodontic relapse. I had, um, upper and lower permanent lingual bars placed on the back of my teeth following braces and Invisalign and all the things, um, expansion. And, but I wasn't expanded enough. I wasn't, my palate needed to be grown forward and, you know, I needed further expansion. And so I've done that since, but it's, you know, I'm still on my airway journey too. I still have to deal with the nose. Um, but it's, it's interesting because when I say UARS, most people have never heard of it. So do you get like a lot, I know that when you're working with patients, like, did you get a lot of patients who had never heard of that? And how would you explain it to them? So patients and most doctors have never heard of it. And mm -hmm. even most sleep doctors dismiss it. 
because gold standard is a sleep study. And if you don't meet that cutoff of five, you don't have sleep apnea. Yeah. Um, despite the evidence showing that even young, thin women that don't snore can still have severe sleep apnea. <laughs> but they still have this mental image of the older, heavy set snoring man with a big neck that snores. Right. And even then they miss, they don't question whether or not they have sleep apnea, just put them on medications or whatever. So it's, it's really frustrating. Um, and I thought I could just make some headway with my um, colleagues in medicine. That's why I went in from practice, private practice to academia about 10 years ago. And there's, there's no budging whatsoever. Mm. Um, most of my research studies and publications were against the grain. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I, fortunately I got some published, but most of the time their argument was, well, this can't happen. So it's just not worth publishing. Mm. That's so frustrating. <laughs> To not even not even be able to have an open conversation with your own colleague and you know people in related spaces that mm -hmm. you know I, we see this all the time in our patients but we can't diagnose it as speech pathologists and myofunctional therapists and you know like we can obviously identify the need to refer onward but it's very hard to find sleep doctors or ENTs who who can appreciate that even if you don't fall on the typical sleep apnea you know uh, within those numbers that diagnose you with sleep apnea, then there could also be UARS at play along with mild sleep apnea. I mean, we, I get so many adult patients back to my practice and they go, Oh, it's just mild sleep apnea. You're fine. And we're like, what? <laughs> I know that Christian Guimano never intended. I've heard, you know, him say he never intended for mild to be dismissed. Mild was still a problem. And unfortunately it's not always treated as such. So yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting topic for sure. Yeah. Now, fortunately, the, the group of practitioners that have the most knowledge of this is actually dentists because mm -hmm. they're in the mouth all the time. And there's a lot more dentists that are much more aware of these concepts. Um, not everyone, but there's a growing trend now in the last five, 10 years. And yeah. they're much more aware of the more subtle differences. So they're like the first line doctors along with you guys to kind of see what's going on before it turns into something much bigger. Mm -hmm. And then you have to see a doctor for that reason. Um, and so that's why this is such, such an important topic to talk about and create more awareness among the general public. That's why I, I, I jumped ship and <laughs> started to promote this to the general public as opposed to trying to convince my colleagues. Yeah, and I love that. I know we were talking for a brief moment before we re-recorded and I was talking about how stepping away from personally treating at the moment to go on and educate on a larger scale so that we can reach more patients at exponential levels. It's, you know, it's not easy work, but it's really rewarding work. And it's really, I think, an exciting time to be in this space because it's so needed. And to see so many clinicians and even dentists, I've seen a ton of dentists come forward, like you were mentioning, um, we work with a lot of airway centric dentists, as we like to call them. And um, it's, you know, if we can't, unfortunately, in the DMV, we have a really hard time getting ENTs on board to further dis the discussion and further help our patients. But we found that a lot of our airway centric dental colleagues are really at the forefront of this. And sometimes we can work around, you know, having to pull ENT in and just go to the airway centric dentist, which I hate to say, because I really wish that our ENTs would take a better look at this. Um, but that's a whole nother conversation for another day. <laughs> it's really frustrating for me because I, ever since I quit, I get probably five or 10 questions a day asking who can I go to see? Oh, yeah. And honestly, I've, I mean, I, I'm sure they're out there. I just don't know of any personally, especially in the tri-state area in New York. Right, right. It's a huge problem. Mm -hmm. It's a huge issue. I know there's, there's like a, a couple token ENTs in the United States of America that I know that we can definitely refer to and trust, but none of them happen to be within the DMV either. You know, there's some that are I think more airway focused in the way that we're airway focused. And, you know, I was um, talking to another ENT on the podcast recently who is more in this space. And he said, I really don't like that whole airway centric term for like from an ENT standpoint, like I'm like, yeah, because ENTs sh should be airway centric by definition of what you all do. <laughs> so it was, yeah, it was a very yeah. interesting, enlightening conversation around that. I, I can see why he would be against that term because by definition, we, ENTs are airway centric. Right. That's but what you're you missing, do. You're missing an important aspect of the airway when you're sleeping. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about UARS because I think it's a really 
I think we're going to have a lot of listeners, whether they're parents of young children and they're the children possibly that need to be checked for this or the parents themselves, which always happens. Um, and, or the providers, the professionals that listen to the podcast, you know, I know everyone's going to ask me like, well, what causes UARS? Like, how do we know someone might have UARS versus sleep apnea aside from a sleep study? Cause I know like as a myofunctional therapist, we can look in the throat. We can see if the tonsils are enlarged and maybe that's a red flag to refer them onward. Um, obviously we can't visualize the adenoids without sending them onward for a scan or a scope, but you know, what causes UARS and what are some of the things that you recommend people look for? So let's step back a little bit and talk about the big picture. And this is what I talk about in my book that modern human faces have been shrinking over the past couple of decades and accelerating in the last even 10, 15 years. Um, and I mean, we could go back thousands of years ago, but because of a change in our diets and what kind of foods we eat, our bites have changed with our teeth. So agriculture going from hunter-gathering societies to farming communities, eating more processed foods, grains, those kind of things. So softer diets in general. So that shifted our, our jaws. And then there was a really interesting book I just came across called Consider the Fork by B. Wilson. And she talked about culinary tools over the centuries of how people use tools to eat. And there's one really fascinating chapter about knives. And she pointed out this um, anthropologist named, uh, I think, Loring Brace. Yeah, Brace. And he looked at thousands of skulls in England and China. And what he discovered was that up until recently, humans had edge-to-edge -edge bites. So the front teeth met together like this but modern humans have an overbite. And that started when these people started to eat with utensils and cut with knives. So it's interesting that in England, the rich people, the aristocracy had access to the knives. So they had the overbite first, and then the peasants came last. Same thing in China. That's so fascinating. I mean, that's so interesting. I love hearing about this because I, uh -huh. I really, I mean, you can, you really come to appreciate evolution mm -hmm. and how we got from where we were to where we are today. And I've heard mm -hmm. this conversation around shrinking skulls. I know that there's some research being done on this too, looking at prehistoric skulls versus, you know, where we are today. And you can, you can see it. I mean, it's very obvious when you look at the actual prehistoric skulls to see right. the bite change and just the skulls in general shrinking. Um, do you feel like that is one of the primary reasons for, for UARS? Right. That, that, that was the main point of my book, yeah. but it's scary that it's happened. It's even accelerating even more in the last 50 years. So we okay. just did a study we, we're waiting for an answer from publication. We looked at 13,000 college yearbook faces from 1930s to now, and we analyzed width to height ratios. And not just surprisingly, modern faces are much more narrow and taller. So that's why people have these more triangular, longer faces. And the yeah. jaws are more narrow, the bites are, the smiles are not, not as good looking. And if, if you look at these people from the 1930s, these movie stars, they look like aliens because they have these wide jaws and just perfect smiles. Um, it's, just, it's really shocking that how quickly it's happened in the past 50 years. Um, but a lot of these concepts, I, I didn't invent this, I didn't discover this. Um, I, a lot of my ideas came from dentists before me, like Dr. Weston Price, I'm sure he, you're familiar with him, yeah. um, who, who traveled the world in the 1930s, looked at these indigenous cultures throughout all five continents. And as long as they ate off the land, ocean and mountains, uh, they had perfect teeth and no cavities and they're healthy. And then as yeah. they adopt Western diets, they got much sicker health, uh, more uh, prone to infectious diseases, more cavities. Um, and so there's a lot of, lot of points along the line that you know, contributed to my understanding. Uh, but the biggest, paper that kind of had this eureka moment for me was a paper by, by, by Dr. Terrence Davidson. Um, he's an ENT. He, he wrote this paper on the, um, uh, forget the title. Basically, it's the, the evolutionary reasons for sleep, developing sleep apnea because we can talk. So speech and language development unprotected the upper airway. Okay. And I don't have the diagrams here, but basically during development, the, hip, the voice box if, if this is a tongue right here and the, and the voice box is here, in uh, chimpanzees, it's behind the tongue, whereas mm -hmm. in humans, it's below the tongue. Okay. It's called laryngeal descent. Yeah. And so you need laryngeal descent to create a true oropharynx, the gap between the soft palate and the epiglottis. So that allows for complex speech and language development, but also unprotected the airway. So that's why only humans have these choking and swallowing problems that animals don't have. 
Interesting. I never knew that. That's really fascinating. So then, so that, and we, we accommodated, right? Language, culture, civilizations. But then as its jaws get even smaller and smaller, now it's starting to cause problems. Mm-hmm. That, I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense. It's very fascinating as a speech language pathologist. I can really appreciate, you know, the, <laughs> the chain, well, the difference in anatomy and the laryngeal descent. It's really, it makes sense. But yeah, we do. Also, as a speech language pathologist, I work, you know, my team works with a lot of babies. And we work with a lot of these babies who are born sometimes with tethered oral tissues, who are born with high narrow palates, who are, so it's happening in utero, right? So it's that trickle down effect of epigenetics. And um, it's just something that I think is not talked about enough because these babies that we're seeing, they're coughing, they're gagging, they're, you know, everyone's saying, oh, they have a sensory processing disorder. Why? Mm-hmm. Why are they in fight and flight? What fight or flight? Why is their airway? Why can't they protect their airways? Like, this other infant over here can well, you know, so it it just, it's very fascinating when we start to like, look back to where these, you know, not look back, but look at the babies that are being born right now in 2021. And even my own daughter was born. Both my kids were born with tongue and lip ties. And we, um, I didn't know about my first daughters until she was 24 months. And I got turned (laughs) away a couple ENTs. She also had like three plus tonsils that ENT said he was unimpressed by them. I was like, I am very impressed by those, you know, and I'm like, I'm not saying I want them taken out. I just want to know what, what can we do? Like, how do we open her airway better? And there was no scan of her adenoids at the time. And anyways, she ended up going into early expansion and had a tongue tie release, tongue tie release at 24 months expansion around age four which was early at that time. And now I would like to see it even earlier now. Um, and her tonsils just shrunk down as we opened her airway about like three not, months not, during tonsils. <laughs> and when I, it was interesting because I posted this in a orofacial myofunctional group on Facebook and I was told to delete the post. I was like, they jumped down my throat. Wow. What have to say that as a mother or oral facial myologist or SLP, there is no research to support this. And I'm like, I'm just anecdotally telling you what happened in my daughter's case. I didn't say, I didn't make a blatant statement or claim about everybody. I'm like, but wouldn't it make sense that soft tissue would change in response to hard tissue movement? Like, I just think this warrants a conversation. (laughs) Actually, there is evidence. There's a study many years ago showing that uh, they looked at kids with sleep apnea with large tonsils. And they split it into two groups. One, two, one group got tonsillectomy, the other kid, the other group got palatal expansion. At the, at the end, the results were equivalent. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Oh, I need to find that study. Um, yeah, I know that there's also been, I had Dr. Tracy Tran on the podcast, who I don't know if you're familiar with her, but she's a pediatric dentist out in the LA area. And she just told me about some research that was being done right now, too, that I think it's a case study, but it was showing this. It was showing that you know, the increase in airway in response to, um, to palatal expansion, early intervention, and, you know, decrease in some of these enlarged soft tissues. And I was like, oh, thank goodness. Like, I feel like, you know, when you have an older study, everyone's so quick to dismiss it. When you have a case study, everybody's so quick to dismiss that. And I'm over here going like, look guys, I mean, evidence-based practice includes everything from the clinical evidence to our experience, to the patient's, you know, goals and values and experience. And why are we dismissive of information that's so helpful to other patients? It's so frustrating. Uh, that's, that's really shocking to hear about your experience with your journal. Uh, that reminds me of, um, there was a woman that introduced me to myofacial uh, therapy. Um, her name is Janet Bennett. Her, mm. uh, she's been on the internet for like Two, like two decades uh, promoting tongue exercises for snoring. And mm-hmm. she's also a speech and swallow therapist and she has an online program and her state medical board tried to ban her basically. She was, she was in a fight to, to keep her license. Wow. Wow. I, you know, it's, it's so, it's just, it's sad at the end of the day. I mean, we're here helping patients and there's so much that myofunctional therapy has been proven to help reduce snoring, get the tongue in the right place. It, yeah, it's, it's sad and frustrating. <laughs> I know it's an up an uphill battle and I'm here for it. I'm, I'm here for the journey. Um, but you know, that was also what prompted me to get online. And I started looking for a myofunctional podcast. I was like, there's gotta be a podcast on airway or facial myology, tethered oral tissues. And there wasn't back in like middle of 2019. I just couldn't find something that combined those topics. And so I started the podcast then because I was like, 
well, someone else is not going to talk about it. Clearly I have to. <laughs> so here we are, here we are two years later. Um, but no, it's, it's been really interesting because it's also been a great opportunity to connect me with families who are trying to find help. And I've now been able to also go back to a lot of groups online and say, Hey, I have a family here. Who can we refer them to? And whether it's an ENT or a dentist or a speech pathologist, myofunctional therapist, you know, we've, we've been able to connect hundreds of families just through DMs on Instagram and Facebook and sort of my, my passion project that, you know, I invite everybody, if you can't find a provider, like DM me and I will put messages out to where I can. And, you know, and I will say 90% of the time we're able to find them somebody who is in the airway centric myo airway tot space. They also do pediatric feeding. So sometimes there are our little ones under the age of four who aren't really myo ready. Um, and, you know, in my program, I do teach myo and tots how, and how that can be adapted and, you know, how we can work with birth to four, because I don't think we should be waiting. That's the other thing that's so frustrating is you know, I've been told as a mom, oh, just wait till she's older. And I'm like, no, why would I wait till she's older when we have an issue now? And when, you know, I know there's research out there too, that shows that some children with obstructive sleep apnea, and I don't know if it's just sleep apnea, I think it is obstructive, but that they have IQs that are depending on the paper, it says anywhere between 10 to 16 points lower than their same age peers, just because of their sleep quality. You know, and it's, I don't, do you, are you familiar with some of those papers as well? I'm sure there are dozens of articles like that. I stopped counting those kind of articles because you can link sleep apnea up to almost anything. Mm-hmm. And there's tons of studies about kids and development. And um, I, I, let me actually just mention one thing that I think you may find interesting. So are you aware of the back to sleep campaign that was started in the 1980s to prevent SIDS? Yeah. So yeah. it's kind of a complicated history, but basically they studied thousands and thousands of babies who died of SIDS and came to the conclusion that sleeping on the back, sorry, sleeping on the stomach was bad to increase the risk of SIDS. But they also had other risk factors like smoking, um, loose bedding, um, some other variables to allergies, co-sleeping, those kind of things. So they, but they had, they picked just the sleeping on the stomach. And so they recommended keeping babies on their backs for the first year of life. Now, when they started that, it lowered the SIDS rate by like 40% or 50%. So it's considered successful. Mm-hmm. But then we started to see all these developmental delays. Kids couldn't lift their, their heads, they had delays coordinating mental abilities. Um, and so it makes sense because if you take a normal, healthy infant and keep them on their stomach and they sleep well, and you put them on the back, they, you go into a lighter state of sleep. Mm. And so you're you're sleep depriving all these babies to save, I know I mean, obviously one death is too many, but yeah. to save 40% of SIDS cases, which is like a couple thousand a year. And I think that kind of elevated everything to be much worse um, a couple of decades ago. Interesting. Yeah, this is, uh, this, so this is actually a topic that I, we've talked about it a couple of times on the podcast way back when, and I've always said, look, I'm not a pediatrician. I didn't do the research. So, you know, I might be stepping out of line here, but I don't think that babies sleeping on their backs is necessarily a healthy, yeah. a healthy thing to promote. And, and for several reasons, right? If we have babies with airways that could potentially be collapsing on themselves when they're laying back, you know, babies with tongue ties where the tongue is falling back into the airway, babies, I'm like, we could just go on with a list of different examples of, I've seen some of these babies in my own included. So my daughters with their tongue ties, my first one had an extremely tight neck at birth. They could both hold their heads up at birth. You know, I was like, that's not, that's not so typical. Um, they were very tight. And, you know, my first daughter, she, as early as she could flip herself over, you know, a couple months, like I, she wasn't even, she wasn't even a couple months yet, flipped herself over onto her belly while she was sleeping. And I was like, like as a new mom, I was like, oh my gosh, she's supposed to sleep on her back. She would not stay there. And I was like, well, I'm not going to fight it because physically for some reason she is flipping herself onto her belly. And if that's where she needs to be, that's where she needs to be. And she was that child who slept with her like butt up in the air, like yeah. that tripod yeah. thing, yeah. you know, not and I was like, you know, now I look back and I'm like, I think she was opening up her own airway. Honestly, I think that's why she was positioning that way. So have you, is there any merit to that? Because we talk about tripod oh. sleeping and how we should look into airway if we're doing that. Oh, that. That's a classic sign of a sleep breathing problem. And they're compensating. But the problem is that it's not good enough. It, it helps significantly. 
Yeah. That's not good enough. Yeah. Yeah. And she was 24 months before I finally, so I took my Mayo course. I learned from Sandra Holtzman and Becky Ellsworth. I come back and I am like, okay, I have to look at, I have to assess every child on my caseload. I'm just going to offer free evaluations in the next appointment. I'm just going to do it for every child because I can't not now. And, but I went home and I flipped her over and we were no longer breastfeeding at this point because while we did it for 13 months, it was extremely painful. She was always first percent on the growth curve, but she was on her own growth curve. So she was fine. Even though they marked her failure to thrive, she lost too much weight in the hospital. I mean, Mm -hmm. she fed around the clock. It was, she wouldn't take a bottle for my nanny. You know, I only went back to work two part days a week treating because I was like, my baby won't eat and I own the practice. So I have the flexibility, thankfully to do that. But she, it was just amazing to see overnight changes in her body. She had that tongue tie released. Um, I took her to an oral surgeon that was highly well-known in my area and who now has done many releases on our patients who need them. And the next day you could just see her whole body just relax. And it was like, it was fascinating because we had not done any other body work or anything between that appointment. When I saw that her constipation went away the next day, I had no idea. I was like, hold on. And it hasn't, and it hasn't come back and she's six now. And I'm like, this is, we really struggled with that. And I refused to put her on Miralax because I was too woo woo, holistic, crunchy mama who was like, no, we're going to deal with this in the natural way. <laughs> we're not going to put a medication in you to solve a problem when I think this is caused by another problem. But it was just, it really opened up my eyes because when I started putting all the pieces to the puzzle together, I went, huh, I used to work with children with autism and a lot of them struggled with bowel movements. A lot of them. And they were the reason why I even got into the feeding space and became specialized in pediatric feeding because they all ate the same diet. They all, you know, they, they had a lot of similar mannerisms and I think it has nothing to do with their diagnosis. I think it had a lot to do with a lot of the underlying etiologies that led to the diagnosis. And it's just been, you know, that's a whole nother conversation, but they really opened up my eyes to kind of wanting to figure out the root cause of why they're eating the way they're eating, because it makes sense. They're constipated. I mean, one, they don't chew their food properly Two, They're eating bland colored foods. They're not eating anything colorful. They're not eating anything really of much nutritious value most of the time. Um, so yeah, it just being able to come back, look at my own daughter, have these results, go back and work with my patients. You know, it changed the way I do therapy. It's totally changed the way I practice. And some of these kids who'd been on caseloads for a very long time were dismissed six months later because we took a different approach and we opened up our eyes to a different way of looking at things and getting down to the root cause. And it was, it was really like, it was life-changing for me. It, it seems like these kids with feeding difficulties is not just in kids with autism, but across the board. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I can count the, at least five or six children in my neighborhood that have feeding difficulties, young children. Uh, it's almost like it's almost normal now to have some developmental problem. Yeah, it's it's um, a very interesting state of affairs. So you know, we look at these kiddos who parents often come to us as speech pathologists. One either because the child has cut out so many foods that they're down to like less than twenty, and they're nervous that they're going to keep cutting more out, or they get to us when they're they have less than ten or even less than five foods that they accept, and the parents like really panicked. Mm-hmm. Um, or they come to us because a child's speech is really hard to understand. And we take, in either case, we look in their mouths, we do intraoral assessments, we do extraoral assessments, we look at full body, we collaborate with other providers. And I will, I mean, most of the time, a lot of these kids, especially when they're, it's an absence of a syndrome, a lot of these children that are otherwise typically developing, they, they're, they were born with OMDs. They were born with orofacial myofunctional disorders. They were, their teeth came in and their teeth are a mess. They have malocclusion from, you know, eruption of teeth. It's, it's just, you know, we start to look at things from a structural standpoint and then we go, oh, well, it makes sense that they're, you know, their soft tissue is a mess because their bone isn't in the right place. I mean, it's just, it's, it's really been, um, it's been an interesting journey, but yes, I will say a lot of these kiddos, unfortunately presenting the way that they do, that, that's also what pushed me into going, hey, nobody's really talking about or teaching Mayo as it applies to like infants, toddlers and preschoolers. We can't be waiting until they're four years of age. That drives me insane. And we, in my practice, we were working with these kids regardless of age because we're speech pathologists and occupational therapists and we can. And so I basically said, let's take these, the goals of Mayo and apply it to our babies and our toddlers. And when we started to do that and we still use, you know, more traditional oral motor interventions, which is 
sometimes more of a passive intervention initially, especially on our younger ones, then like myo is, you know, obviously a volitional type of exercise and you need to have a cognitive level of a four-year-old to really fully understand how to engage in a traditional myo program. Um, it was just very, it was very fascinating to see the changes that we were able to make in these infants and toddlers lives. And hopefully for some of them, put them on track to not need therapy down the road. That's really the end goal. And, and getting some of them into early expansion in their late toddler years versus waiting until they're six to nine or even in their teens. I mean, if we can do this now, why are we waiting? Right. And that's, that's the next step is finding the dentists who are willing to put an appliance in when they have their, their, you know, two-year-old molars come in. I'm like, we don't need to work for anything else. We just need to work on the palate. Actually, I have a lot of dentists in our area that, that do that, that do that early expansion. And so I think that's a, it's a very, very good first step for these kids who who kind of fit this uh, mold. Um, The other thing that I want to kind of point out is that we have a lot of options after you're born and all these options, myofunctional therapy, the dentistry, ENT involvement, they all help when you combine everything together. And that will, I think, honestly, it'll help the vast majority of kids, but not everyone. Mm -hmm. And the problem is that your jaws are so small to begin with, no matter what you do, it's just not going to be enough. And especially with the expansion, like it says, it's expanding side to side, but it has less forward movement. Right. And so some people, I'm not recommending this, but some people will need jaw surgery later on just because it's so bad. Um, it's because of just underdeveloped jaws to begin with or extract excessive extractions later on in life, mm-hmm. which is still happening. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes, it yeah. is it, on our intakes and we just go, no, <laughs> no. Yeah, that's so my daughter went into, um, an ALF appliance and, and I, you know, it really did a great job for her maxilla. Thankfully, she does still have a little bit of a high palate, but she's not as narrow as she was. Um, and at this point now we're looking into the next phase where we want to grow her, her mandible forward a little bit more. Um, because that's, you know, I, I was looking at her initially going like, okay, we think she's, she's good. She's great. And she really, she was in it from four to five. Um, and she's been able to hold that she's, you know, she hasn't had any relapse and I'm monitoring closely. She went back into Maya with one of my therapists after her appliance was done. And really, because she still has a frontal lisp and we needed to address that. And so even though it sounds good, her speech sounds fine. You don't hear a lisp when she talks, but I see the tongue coming forward and I know too much. So I'm like, this is not okay. We have to correct this. Um, But it's, I was collaborating and and speaking at a um, conference with um, Michael Gelb and Lane Martin and Lane, I had Lily in my presentation and afterwards, you know, he didn't want to say anything. And I said, no, no, lay it on me. Tell me like, what does she need? What do you think? And he said, I think she needs a lower lip bumper to bring her mandible forward a bit more. I said, fine, done. Who do I go to for that? Um, so it's, it is this really interesting space to be in right now to be learning more and, and even to learn from you right now. And, you know, you've taught me a few new things today. And you know, sometimes we do have those cases where we get in, we do all the things and they still, there's still a struggle and we're going, okay, maybe it's just more time. Maybe we just need more time. We're going to follow the case. We're going to, you know, continue to try and figure out, put the pieces of the puzzle together here and bring in any necessary team members, you know, but sometimes we still get those cases that are, they're tricky and it's, it's hard. Yeah. Um, so for those, let's go back to UARS a little bit. So just to delineate it a bit further, right? Other than the sleep scale, the sleep studies, um, are there other like overt symptoms or ways that you can tell that somebody has UARS versus let's say sleep apnea? Or is it hard to like differentiate? Well, from a practical standpoint, um, you wanna know whether or not you have sleep apnea versus UARS because if you have a sleep apnea diagnosis, then generally it's covered by insurance, the treatments are covered. Okay. So I know that that should not be the main reason, but for yeah. practical reasons, you have to do it. Mm-hmm. So if they have sleep apnea, then at least you have other options to, to look at, even mm-hmm. though they're not all very good options, but at least we have some treatment options. Um, but let's say that, that you come in with these very symptoms. Um, the classic URS patients are a little, little bit different. They tend to be younger, thinner, a little bit more women than, than men, like mm-hmm. 65, 35. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the time they'll, ha- they'll be on, on the thin side, low blood pressure, dizzy, lightheaded, 
headaches, migraines, anxiety, sinus problems, digestive issues, cold hands, cold feet. I mean, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. The hypothyroidism, these, these um, somatic syndromes. Um, and so, and I actually, I talk about this in my book. I, I saw this young woman who was very, very vibrant and healthy. And then over many years, she started to become really tired and fatigued, headaches, migraines, irritable bowel syndrome, cold hands and feet, um, low blood pressure, dizzy and lightheaded. And she came in for sinus infections, but they were not sinus infections. They were repeated sinus migraines. So we, I treated her just conventionally. It didn't get better. Then she said she wasn't sleeping well, so I ordered a sleep test. And she had just mild sleep apnea, which didn't explain all her symptoms. Mm -hmm. So she tried CPAP and she tried the mouth guard to move the jaw forward, didn't help. And she was begging me for surgery. But at that time, I was not convinced that she needed surgery, just like any other ENT. You, you only have mild sleep apnea, you don't fit the typical picture. Mm. So I kind of blew her off a little bit. And she kept coming back, just begging for surgery. <laughs> and I just started doing sleep apnea surgery. And I, I just read this article about a tongue-based suspension operation. So I said, well, there's this new technique to move the tongue cord because he has a small mouth. So we did the operation along with the palatoplasty. And so six weeks later, actually three months later, her sleep study showed that it, it went from 13 to 0.2. So she was cured from a sleep apnea standpoint. But what was more surprising and shocking was that every other one of her symptoms were gone. Headaches, oh. migraines, IBS, cold hands, lower pressure, depression. She was a completely new person just by changing the anatomy. So I know that's an extreme example, but I mean, I have similar examples of, of children just stopping, just changing their diet alone. Yeah. Like one, one six-year-old was bedwetting every night. He was having ice cream just before bedtime. So we stopped that and it went away. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah, this is, I mean, I love this stuff. This stuff gets me excited because I think that food is absolutely the best medicine and that we need to be looking at our diets, which so many are not willing to do. And I get it as a busy mom who runs two businesses and my husband works a lot too, you know, it's, it's hard. It's hard to make gourmet custom meals for your family and your children. But I think our health and our livelihoods depend on it. And we need to make time to really feed our bodies properly. And eliminate certain types of, you know, foods that are not so helpful to that cause a lot of inflammation in the body. I mean, I've learned myself, I've had a lactose intolerance for a long time. So I typically avoid dairy. Um, I eliminated gluten about a year ago. And when I tried to add it back in this summer, this past summer, oh, my body was angry. It was not good. And I immediately took it back out and felt 100% better. But it's really interesting that you share these symptoms because I used to get dizzy spells and they would be, I was sent to a whole bunch of different doctors. In the end, we thought it was related to like the birth control I was on. This was like back in my early twenties. I haven't taken that stuff since then. Like I just, I don't like to take any medication. Um, I have naturally low blood pressure. I have naturally, you know, it's like all the things you were saying, like my hands might get, you know, cold. Um, my feet might get cold, but I don't, I don't test as a hypothyroid patient, even when they look right. at those additional markers. So I've always been like turned away as someone who's like, no, your thyroid's fine. Um, but yeah, the dizzy, the hand, you know, the IBS, the, all the things that I've pretty much learned I can manage from what I eat and, you know, but I do know I have a deviated septum. I've got, you know, turbinates that need to be reduced. That's the next step in my journey. Um, but beyond that, I had this bout of sinus issues at one point where without fail, every spring and every fall, I would get diagnosed with a sinus, you know, with sinus issues and they would put me on a pack, and then I would have to come back and they put me on a second pack, And then I'd come back the third time. And this is like in the same season, right? And they'd put me on Augmentin. And so after three seasons of this, I finally was like, no, my body is resistant to ZPAC at this point. I'm not a doctor, but I'm telling you, it does nothing for me. Can you please go back and look at my chart and see that this is now the fourth time we're going to be going through this together in the last like spring, fall, spring, fall. And I'm not somebody normally have, I have dust mold, like allergies, but like not horrible seasonal allergies otherwise. And so they put me on Augmentin that time and that knocked it out and it didn't come back after that. So I never really paid attention. Um, I don't know. I don't know what that was, but when you just said like the sinus issues and that, you know, I don't have 
anxiety. I don't have like, there's certain things that I don't completely fit that description, but like I check most of those boxes <laughs> and I was like, Oh, would you look at that? This has been, this has been going on for quite a long time, probably at least since high school. If I can think back to, you know, feeling these symptoms and it's just, it's, uh, it's interesting because nobody ever looked at my sleep. None of the specialists that I went to, I was tested for vertigo. I was tested for all kinds of things, but no, nobody ever wanted to look at my sleep. It's interesting you mentioned your experience with gluten. Um, so I was, I'm not, I don't think I'm gluten sensitive. I mean, obviously I don't have celiac, but um, up until about five years ago, four, about four years ago, um, I was eating bread with gluten, still eating healthy. But then for my 50th birthday, I got a colonoscopy and because that's what they recommended. Yeah. After that, my gut just went crazy. I, I just, I lost like 10 pounds. Wow. <laughs> it just really messed up my gut. And then I became gluten sensitive. Huh? Yeah. After the colonoscopy. And I, I asked my doctor about this. He had no idea what was going on. He never heard of it. Um, I kept testing myself going on and off. It was definitely gluten. Yeah. So I went gluten-free. And then I, my wife and I went on this complete health transformation with our diets, our habits, our toxin elimination. Mm. I mean, we, we went all out. Yeah. Um, we take our supplements regularly. And this past year, I think about a year ago, I noticed that uh, my allergies, my spring and fall allergies were gone. I had really severe allergies. Um, and so, and then I just happened to just start eating. I started making uh, sourdough bread, which is, a little bit safer for gluten, gluten sensitive people, no problem. So then I started to eat some bread with my, my, my uh, sons and had no problem. So right now I'm not gluten sensitive anymore just because of a change in my diet. Interesting. That's so fascinating. Yeah, I've seen, um, there's somebody turned me on to this like Instagram account. I think she's called like the food nanny and she has a farm and she makes all of her own food and she uses like spelt, I think, to make bread. Mm -hmm. Um, so for a lot of people who have gluten issues, I think she's got, you know, different alternatives that you can use. And so I've looked at it and I'm like, that's just so much work. <laughs> I'm just not going to eat it, <laughs> but it's, it's fascinating because, you know, I'm like, clearly my gut is still angry. We're, we're still in that anger stage right now and things need to change and be done. We moved and there is just a lot of changes in, in life and taking on way too much in both of my businesses at the moment. So I'm like, while we're hiring and I can, I'm like, we're going to start to focus on getting everything back on track, but it's, it's tricky. It's challenging. And we live in such a society where everything is like, go, go, go all the time. And it doesn't allow for us to turn inward and focus on ourselves and our health most of the time. And I refuse to be a part of that. You know, I, I'm not about that daily grind. I'm like, no, I really want daily peace. <laughs> I, want, I want to be in a place of peace where I'm not running my kids from like one thing to the next thing all the time, because that also creates that, that same daily grind concept for them. And so anyways, I, I like, I go against the grain in a lot of places in my life that <laughs> don't necessarily match up with many others. And that's okay. Um, but I think that's also why we're, I'm so open to, you know, so much of these, discuss, these discussions, UARS, these topics, and truly trying, you know, helping patients get to the bottom of it, connecting them with providers. I think that's where that passion comes from, like connect them with providers who are going to look at things differently. And if it doesn't fit the narrative that they know currently, are they open to having a different conversation and maybe figuring out what else we can do to help this patient, even if it's not something we've done before, you know, can we find somebody else who can help us? Can we read a few articles or just trial a few things, even if the science doesn't have anything to say about it yet. <laughs> so yeah, it's, uh, it just, it seems like URS is so hard to identify, maybe also for lack of providers looking for it, but then also it's hard to treat. I mean, it's, I feel like OSA yeah. has so many more documented treatments, um, comparatively. Well I'm, I'm being a little bit pessimistic, but having treated sleep apnea for many years, yes, we have some amazing results from treating sleep apnea, but overall, long-term, it's somewhat disappointing. For example, yeah. I just did a blog post on the fact that if you use CPAP, there's a statistically uh, increased risk of weight gain. Oh, that's interesting. Now, a lot of my patients that commented on this blog post, they gained 10, 15, even 70 pounds using CPAP. Okay. I have a family member who is, would fit that bill. So yeah. Okay. 
Um, I just saw, and I, I'm not as familiar with this appliance, but I know Vivo has an MMRNA, which is their nighttime appliance that just got approved for Medicare as an alternative um, uh, treatment compared, like, you know, to use in place, I guess, of a CPAP for some patients. Again, I don't know anything about it. I just saw them post the, and you got an email on this like two nights ago. And I was like, huh, okay, well, maybe this is progress in the right direction. If we can get Medicare to look at alternatives to CPAP, this, this could open some doors. We could argue that other appliances should be covered as well for, you know, forward and forward growth. Right. So the advancement devices are covered by Medicare. And yeah. So the MRNA is, it's a, it's a combination DNA plus advancement. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, I was like, I need to look further into this to see, is it just advancing for sleep? Or are we also growing the palate with this appliance? That's what I was it, not. It is. It's, it that's is. The other, that's the Palo component. Yeah, it's a, it's a hybrid of the Palo expander plus ah. moving the jaw, lower jaw forward. So glad I brought it up and that you know. <laughs> um, so you had mentioned there's a common condition that's usually missed by sleep doctors and ENTs that can mimic UARS. What is that? So it's called, it's a fancy term called epiglottic laryngomalacia, meaning that your epiglottis, which is the top part of your voice box that mm -hmm. covers your voice box behind your tongue. So if this is your tongue tip like this and the tongue goes down this way, the epiglottis looks like this at the base and the voice box is right here behind the epiglottis. So as you breathe in, if the anatomy is not right, the epiglottis just flops in like yeah. a valve. Yeah. And typically we see this quite often in young infants from the firstborn because they yeah. can't breathe, they, get, they turn blue. Yeah. Um, and in general, in our field, we say that most kids outgrow it. And maybe they do, but my opinion is that they really never outgrow it. It just morphs into something else. Interesting. Um, and what I'm finding, it, yeah. yeah. And so what's happening is that because the lower jaw is not developing fully, the hyoid bone, which sits right underneath your jaw, that's what the epiglottis attaches to. And so if the hyoid is positioned more backwards, and the epiglottis kind of goes more towards the back of the throat. And that's, if that suction effect from breathing, it just flops in. Mm. And whenever I do, I've done quite a number of surgeries on these kids. What I find is that the epiglottis itself, the cartilage is really, really weak and flimsy. So it's lost that structure, okay. rigidity of structure of normal cartilage. So something is happening, not just to our bones, but also our soft tissues. Yeah, that's, it's, interesting and scary at the same time. I've, I've worked with some of these babies and it's, it's frustrating. <laughs> I feel like I've said that a lot today um, because they will often be told, oh, they'll grow out of it around 18 months. They just, we just gotta make it to that 18 month part and you know, that 18th month mark. And I'm over here going like, this is not helpful for a parent to think like, okay, as soon as we hit 18 months, like my baby's gonna be fine because more often than not, they're not. It's not actually changing. And a lot of these babies are continuing to struggle into toddlerhood. And so I, I am like, you know, as a feeding therapist, working with these children who they're very challenging babies to feed because their body's constantly in a state of fight or flight. They are just trying to protect their airway and, you know, it's impacting their swallow and then they're not getting enough nutrition or, or they are feeding and then half the feeds are coming up. You know, it's, I've seen so many different presentations, um, but they are honestly probably one of the most challenging right. in the feed. Right. And ENTs in general, I mean, they know about it and we, we say that we treat it, but we really don't. And yeah. so it's hard to find ENTs that's willing to do sleep endoscopy, so drug induced sleep endoscopy. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the better ways of diagnosing it. And I, I was shocked how often I saw that when I, when I saw it in kids, it just, you know, whenever I do any kind of procedure for kids, I do the endoscopy routinely. And a very high number of these kids have incidental epiglottic lungomalacia. Mm. And it, but it's, it's interesting to hear that you feel mm. like it's not really resolving. They're, they're probably learning to compensate. And then it's, it, it's snowballing into greater issues throughout life for those who continue to have an issue with it. Is that my understanding that correctly? Right. So yeah. when I say morphing, so like you said, if you don't treat it for 18 months, then mm -hmm. you're going to increase your sleep deprivation. So they're not going to sleep well. So the brain's not going to develop properly. And then eventually the jaws do grow. So they grow out of it, but then yeah. they're already behind the eight ball. Yeah. Yeah. Oh goodness. These babies. <laughs> like, so what do we do? What do we do? So do you recommend, or, I mean, obviously you can't make recommendations for cases that are, that you're not treating or that are not sitting in front of you, but do most of these babies, like would they benefit from a surgical procedure in infancy? 
Is that that's the only thing that I found that helps? Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it's a little bit drastic. And the thought of, I mean, the procedure itself is really simple, but yeah. just the concept of trimming the epiglottis or stiffening or modifying it, it's, it's terrifying for parents. Yeah. Um, and, and the other fear, the biggest fear is that there's a risk of aspiration or coughing or swallowing problems. And that may be true, uh, although I haven't seen it in my series of patients. I think we, 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 we did a review of 50 patients a couple of years ago, no long-term complications. Okay. Um, now, 5-10% do have it temporarily for a couple of days, but it goes away. Mm-hmm. And there are some smaller re- uh, case studies showing that um, um, the incidence of complications is very, very small. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's good to know. That's, it's good to know that it's an option and that we could mm-hmm. potentially have families advocate for finding a specialist mm-hmm. that might be able to help their mm-hmm. infant because yeah. I know a surgery is scary. From a, from a parental standpoint, and we never wish surgery on any baby, but if that could potentially change them from a health standpoint, because laryngomalacia is a big deal, and the amount of time and energy these families spend just trying to feed their babies, I mean, I, I think more parents, if they were properly educated and, you know, and they had the right professionals and specialists alongside them, you know, they might be more willing to entertain that procedure. I know I can think of some families that if they had been advised to do that, they definitely would have jumped on that bandwagon. And I can tell you too, from experience, some of the results were just dramatic life-changing for the parents and the child. Yeah. Even if the parent isn't breastfeeding, because a lot of them struggle and can't Mm -hmm. have these babies with laryngomalacia, despite Mm -hmm. their goals. Um, I mean, these are the moms that, that, I mean, a lot of the moms do because it's a very, it's a very highly emotional time period for everybody. Um, But they're in tears, you know, Mm in my office frequently, not just at the beginning and not just because, okay, we found the issue and now we know how to proceed. And I'm so grateful and thankful. And, you know, we get a lot of moms who come to us and it's this, you know, it's highly emotionally driven conversation because it's this feeding dyad, but Mm -hmm. these parents with the, with laryngomalacia, these babies with laryngomalacia, I just see that it's, there's another level of stress Mm -hmm. for these families that I don't see in my other families. Um, anyways, so so let's, let's circle back to UARS again. Um, what can we do, right? Like, let's say we go to an ENT and they turn us away, or let's say even we're headed to an ENT who maybe is known for treating UARS. Is there anything that we can do as, you know, adults to help ourselves before we land ourselves in the ENT's office? Okay. So first thing I would tell you to, not to do is to say, Dr. Park said, you should do this. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <Fair happened. enough. laughs> Yeah. Um, that, that's, that's the million dollar question. Um, it really depends on what your support networks are. Like, obviously if they come to you, they're already a couple of steps ahead because yeah. you know how to navigate a system and you have a network of providers that you can send to. Uh, but for the average person in the middle of the U S they may not have the resources. Um, I mean, there's a number of conservative steps you can take, for example, just, um, just you know, sleep hygiene, for example. Some of the older kids if, um, just have, stop having them snack, at, snack late at night. Um, optimize nasal breathing. So now even if the ENT isn't on board with UIRS, they'll help you with the nasal congestion. Mm-hmm. You know, whether with medical therapy or, or, or surgery, or they don't really consider dietary therapy for the nose, but that's something you have to do on your own. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we've seen it. I've seen families where they have totally pulled kids off of dairy, like just dairy alone. And we have seen changes in airway and sleep and behavior. And I mean, it's like that trickle down effect. We see these massive changes and parents, you know, then they come back to me and go, wow, why, why do they even sell this stuff? Why is this on the shelves? And I'm like, well, part of the issue is how highly, you know, modified our foods are. And even when you think you're getting organic or you think you're getting A2 milk from the grocery store shelves, it's very different than getting it from the farmer, right? It's also very different. These organic fields are next to not organic fields. We can't right, control right. <laughs> through the soil from one farm to the next farm. So we may be paying for and thinking we're getting past, you know, pasture raised organic foods, but there's only so much we can control. So we do our best and we eliminate the things that are harmful to our bodies. And that's, you know, I think, unfortunately for so many, dairy is a culprit of a lot of health issues. 
Usually it's number one, dairy, number two, gluten. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I love that you've been able to heal yourself though, in order to be able to mm-hmm. eat gluten again. That's, that's exciting. <laughs> I don't, I don't go crazy with it though. I just, I'm very yeah. selective and even the type of bread I eat. Yeah. Um, like I said, I, I cook my own sourdough, you know, with the starter and it's, it, it's, it's pretty good. Even my wife, my wife is very gluten sensitive and she's fine with it too. Mm-hmm. That's, that's good. That's good to hear. It's good to know. It's, it makes me hopeful. <laughs> it makes me hopeful. So how does somebody go about finding a doctor who might know how to manage UARS, especially if let's say they've had a sleep study mm-hmm. and they were told everything's fine. You're fine. Go along your merry way, but maybe they actually have mild sleep apnea or URARS that was not diagnosed. Any, any tips there? So honestly, a traditional medical doctor won't be able to help you. Yeah. unless you meet certain criteria. Or if now, if you have huge tonsils, they may, may offer it to you, but sometimes they won't. Mm-hmm. There's, this hes- there's, there's a somewhat of a hesitancy by ENTs to offer tonsil surgery. Um, yeah. I, I, I think that's a whole other discussion why later on, but <laughs> um, yeah. because actually, I can tell you one, one study that kind of swung the pendulum to be more conservative. Mm-hmm. I think it was called the children's annual tonsillectomy study or something like a chat study don't quote me on that but there's a study looking at um children who had large tonsils like older children i think five or six up to nine they combined them they split them into two groups one group got the tonsillectomy one got just watchful waiting and the tonsillectomy group the kids did much better parents were very happy but what was surprising was that in the watchful waiting group about i think like 30 40 percent it resolved on their own Mm-hmm. So just based on that data, there's been this pendulum has swung towards more conservative. And this the pendulum in our field swings back and forth every 10 years. Right. So right. Now swinging back more conservative. Uh-huh. <laughs> this oh. means that um, overall, the kids who would benefit from tonsillectomy are not getting treated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But right. my, my question, my answer to parents is, which one should I do? Should I take the tonsils out or the palatal expansion? My honest answer is both. Yeah. And they've shown in that original study I mentioned between tonsillectomy and palatal expansion, when you combine the two together, you get even better results. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if, if someone had said we need to take out Lily's tonsils, I would have said, okay, I'm a little scared of what's to come because I know it's not an easy recovery, but let's, if you think we need to do it, like let's open up our airway. So I'm grateful and I monitor her tonsils closely. Um, but it's, you know, how do we know which children are going to grow out of it? And then how long is it fair to wait for these kids? You know, that's what I always come back to. Like yeah, how my, many, um, my <laughs> opinion on that, sorry, is that the tonsils are, are lymphoid tissues in your throat and helps mm-hmm. to develop your immune system. Yeah. But after, after a certain number of years, if it gets inflamed, it causes more breathing problems, which actually lowers your immune system. Yeah. And there are studies showing that they measured immune, immune function before and after tonsillectomy. They found that it actually improves after tonsillectomy. Ah, okay. Well, you know, I've heard this argument and I've gone like, okay, well, I can, I can also understand why people would be more conservative because, right. you know, but that's, that's interesting data. Well, my theory as to why tonsils stay inflamed is because if you have a sick breathing problem, it's like a vicious cycle. Right. If you obstruct once in a while, you're going to have acid reflux, microscopic subclinical reflux, which can cause your lymphoid tissues to get bigger, causing more obstruction, causing sucking out more stomach juices. Mm-hmm. And what comes up is not just acid, but also bile, enzymes, and bacteria. Mm. Even pepsin. They found pepsin in ear, sinus, and lung fluid. Interesting. Well, yeah. that it makes sense. I, I, yeah. It makes sense. Thank you for that. That's very helpful. Um, that's why when you do expansion, you have less obstructive episodes and tonsils shrink. And I see that happening all the time. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're opening up that airway. I mean, it yeah. makes, yeah, it, it really makes sense when we start to like look at everything. And I always say we're connected from the tip of our tongue down to the tip of our toes. And when you look at the fascia lines, we truly are. Um, and it's, you know, I feel like so many professionals try to treat in silos and we just can't can't do that. We have to come together and treat the human body as I know as a whole. And that's why we have to pull in so many specialists because we all have our scopes and our areas that we specialize in, but it's, it's, you know, we have a journey ahead of us, (laughs) (laughs) right? So, so how can somebody get in touch with you to learn more about, you know, what you do now that you've, you've moved on to the next, the next step um, in your career? How do they get in touch with you? Well, they get in touch with me through my website, drstevenpark.com. That's D-O-C-T-O-R, stevenpark.com. 
And I do have a, um, this uh, starter guide on, it's called Energize Your Day. Mm-hmm. Starter guide, the five simple steps to wake up refreshed and ready to go. So, so it's like five quick tips that you can get um, to help you sleep better, breathe better, feel better. And you can get it at energizeyourday.today. So energizeyourday.today. Perfect. And we will put that in the show notes so that anybody who is listening can go and download those and get any of the links that you've shared with us as well. I appreciate you joining me on the podcast. This has been extremely enlightening and informational, and I know our listeners are going to love this one. So thank you so much, Steve, for joining me today. So my pleasure. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you want to hear more of these Mayo Tots airway and feeding related episodes, be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash the untethered podcast. If you found value, others you know in this space will too. So be sure to share this episode on your social media platforms and join us over on Facebook, on my Facebook page at Hallie Balkan Biz, on Instagram at, at Hallie Balkan. And you can head over to the untetheredpodcast.com to grab a copy of the show notes um, where you can also subscribe to be kept up to date on the latest podcast episodes. 